Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 37, reading verses 1 to 10. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 27. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And now reading from Genesis 50, verses 15 to 26. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I'll continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the age of 110. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim, and he lived to see the birth of his children, of the children of Manasseh and son of Makar, who he claimed as his own. Soon I'll die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and he said, when God comes back to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Richmond this morning. Uh, my name is Elliot, if I haven't met you. Um, one of the pastors here at Richmond. And it's our pleasure to have you with us today and to continue a story with you. We've been journeying through uh, the story of God's people in the book of Genesis. Um, I wish we could have read the whole story, but it's 14 chapters long. And so we're going to summarize part of it together. Um, but we're also going to try and ask what sort of questions, what sort of things does God, uh, might God want to say to us um, through this story, to us, his people in this time and this place. Uh, but I'm going to pray as we, as we open the Bible together. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you for the time of community we've already had together this morning to share in song and prayer and story, uh, hopefulness, uh, life in you, community in you. We thank you for the reminder again this morning of reconciliation to you and to one another and to others. Jesus, as a community, we hold ourselves before your Holy Spirit now to listen well, to open our ears and our hearts, our lives. Uh, we pray that we might continue on this journey of listening together, listening as you shape us through your word, as we hear the stories of you and your people. We pray that you might strengthen our faith in you, call us to imagine life in you and a future in you. We thank you for this time that we have now together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're finishing a teaching series today that is journeyed through the stories of the patriarchs. And what we've discovered is that the patriarchs are messy, inconsistent, and thoroughly human in life and family and faith. We've also seen that these stories include characters who are unexpected outsiders. These stories are not just about the fathers of faith. In an ancient era when families were defined by fathers and bloodlines were determined by the birth order of the males, our story includes many unpredictable twists. And a highlight for me, and I think maybe for us too as a church, through this series has been the stories of Hagar and Tamar, two women who made difficult and courageous decisions in the complexity of cultural and gender norms of their time. And through their stories and through the stories of the other characters in this saga, we've been challenged to think about our own call to faith through the dramatic, the unexpected, and the difficult reality of life. And one of the things that has stood out to us over this time is the honest storytelling about the people who are the parents, the ancestors, and heroes of our faith. Because in ancient times, stories were told to honour the ancestors and especially the men. And here in the Bible, we have brutally honest stories about the character flaws and selfishness and lust and division that existed in the family of God. What we've also seen is that as much as these stories are about an ancient family and the birth of a nation, they are more about the God who calls this nation his people and the king the kingdom that he is calling them to be, the kind of people that he is calling them to be. There is a way to read these stories and to read each story about each character as being about having faith in God and what it looks like to have good character and make good choices. But the broader story, the overarching narrative, is the story of God's own faithfulness that he will do what he's promised, that he walks with his people in the mess and despite the mess and that he calls people to faith in him and his purposes and to his imagination for their flourishing. Now, as we finish the last part of the adventure of God's people told to us in this book of Genesis, we find yet another story filled with drama and danger and mess. And this story, like the other stories of God in the Bible, 
Show us a God who works with colourful and unexpected characters and a God who remains faithful to a flawed family. We also see a God who weaves his story through the epics of ancient empires, a God who subverts their claim to power and points to himself as the one true power. This week, we continue our story in the story of Joseph, the epic of Joseph. I think it's one of the stories in the Bible that we can say is well-known story of God. But I want to ask, which version of the story do we know? Is it the Broadway version sung in Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream quote, which in my view presents a story stuffed through a filter of individualized American capitalism, where it turns out that it's all about that anyone with a dream can make it. But the story of Joseph told to us in the Bible is far more complex, more nuanced, and challenging to hear. And this story actually casts a long shadow over the story of God's people well into their future. The story begins in chapter 37 with an arrogant teenager who dreams of greatness. He's spoiled by his father and loathed by his brothers. This part of the story is all about a coat, the dream coat, the technicolor cloak, a symbol of blessing and honor and a hint at who the boy's father, Jacob, will choose as his heir. And as Joseph is the 11th born son, this causes a dangerous undertone of jealousy within the family. And Joseph doesn't help the situation because Joseph is a dreamer. We might call him Joseph the dreamer. We've had Isaac the ordinary. Today we've got Joseph the dreamer. Because it is his dreams, his own dreams and the dreams of others that become an important thread through this epic. And in this first part of the story, he dreams that one day his brothers and even his father will bow down to him. And he decides to tell them. And then one day he's sent to check up on them. And he wears his cloak and that look on his face. And the brothers can't deal with it anymore. Joseph ends up being thrown into a dry well and then sold to traders as a slave to Egypt. The brothers cover their tracks by ripping up that precious cloak, smearing it with blood. And their story is that a wild animal got to Joseph. The bloodied cloak, their evidence. And a father is left grieving for the son he thinks is dead. In his mind, too, perhaps the dream is dead. Maybe Jacob saw Joseph as the one who would continue to father the nation that God was establishing, the dream that was given to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. Perhaps he was thinking it would be Joseph and his dream that would continue. And now he's dead. A father grieves both the loss of a son and perhaps the loss of the dream. This is a story filled with tension and violence and grief. For Jacob, it is a story filled with death and empty failure and dreams dreamed but unlived. The story continues and we find Joseph still alive. 
He rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar before being falsely accused of rape by his wife. He's thrown into prison where he rises to uh, prominence again and responsibility before interpreting the dreams of the head baker and the head cupbearer of Pharaoh. And eventually in this story, he finds himself before Pharaoh, the most powerful, important person in the entire world, interpreting a powerful dream and creating a strategy for the salvation of Egypt. Now, in the popular story, there isn't far to go from here. Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt. There's some drama with a cup and a sack. Benjamin is going to be in prison, but Judah pleads with him, and Joseph relents, and they're all reunited as a happy family and ruin it by singing. (laughs) This is where the popular story differs from the story of the Bible. When Jacob finally comes to Egypt and is reunited with Joseph, we still have several chapters of this story left. These deal with where Joseph's family will settle in Goshen, in the northeast of Egypt, in the Delta, fertile land. But as soon as that is decided, the story reaches its darkest moment of all. The people of Egypt come to Joseph begging him for food because they've run out of money and he forces them to sell their livestock to him in exchange for the grain that's stored up. The following year, they come to him and say, our money is gone, our livestock is gone, all we have is just our bodies and our lands, and he says, sell me those as well. And by doing that, he enslaves the entire population of Egypt. This is the climax that the story's been building towards, a dark climax, perhaps. But the popular stories always end before we get here. And whatever way you read it, though, Joseph ends up enslaving an entire people group from the second most powerful seat in the world's most powerful empire. Now, part of this story is about Joseph's rise and success in the empire. It's also about how the dream bearer, Joseph the dreamer, succeeds in the face of the empire. In chapter 39, Joseph has his first confrontation with the ways of the empire. He's resisted temptation from the seductive woman out of loyalty to his master and fear of God. He succeeds there. In chapter 40, Joseph again encounters the empire, this time making key connections with people who have the ear of Pharaoh. And then in chapter 41, there he is face to face with the very empire itself, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And an interesting twist in this story is that we find Pharaoh powerless. We find the empire unable to greedily buy or violently force its way. A dream stands in its way. And here is Joseph standing before the empire in an episode that belittles the empire, that refutes the wisdom and strength and wealth of the empire. This dramatic scene is a challenge to Pharaoh, one who is used to having everything under control, having everything his way, the most powerful person in the world. The collective knowledge and wealth and military power of Egypt was her strength. And now that imperial strength has failed. 
And with that failure, authority is diminished. And the claims of the empire, the power of the empire is put in question as it is refuted by this dream. Now, this all creates the necessary opening for Joseph. The narrative tells us of this subtle delegitimization of Egypt's whole reality. The worldview within which it lived was challenged as it couldn't find its own way and was powerless in the face of this dream, where the empire thought it knew how to find life. It was shown to be lacking. Where the empire thought it could buy flourishing life, its wealth is questioned. Where the empire thought it could force a way to find flourishing life, it's shown to be weak. The dream in front of Pharaoh presents him with a new reality he cannot control or understand or buy off or domesticate. No wonder he is troubled, the story tells us. The most powerful person in the world, troubled. No wonder he is frantic to find out the intent of this message which has surprised him in the night. In this story, God is shown to be over empire. And it's not the last time this happens in the story of God and his people in the Bible. In the story of Jesus, Jesus stands before the empire twice, once symbolically and once in person. At his birth, Herod, the king of the region, is helpless because he doesn't have the knowledge he needs to manage his future at the news of a birth of a king. Do you remember his frantic response as he goes about killing a generation of young boys, frantically trying to control this challenge to his empire? And at the end of his life, Jesus stands before the Roman representative of power in that day, Pilate. But as we read this story, we we might rightly ask, is Jesus standing before Pilate as you read that story, or is Pilate standing before Jesus? In those stories, again, we have this amazing inversion of power, a challenge by God himself against the power, the control, the wealth, the might of empire. Empire, strong and rich and beautiful, is helpless before the God of all things. This story boldly states that the claims of the empire are fraudulent. Egypt, the ones who claim to be the bringers of life to themselves, to their people, to all of humanity, Egypt is not the bringer of life that they marketed themselves to be, but now becomes the place of death and is unable to stand on its own in the face of famine. I think the story exposes for us Pharaoh's helpless desperation when he makes a recently released convict prime minister over all Egypt. It smells of desperation, right? Surely there are wiser, more thoughtful Egyptians already in place across the empire that could be prime minister. But Pharaoh, in his desperation, calls an outsider out of prison to take control. And Joseph is promoted over 
the empire. I think at this point in the story, as listeners, as readers, we are meant to consider the story of empire that we find ourselves living in. What sort of claims does the political world around us, the materialistic world around us, claims to life and hope and flourishing, what sort of claims does the empire around us make? The story of God in the Bible is often the story of God claiming his place over the false claims of the empires of our world. And in Jesus, we see a king claim his place as king over all kings, over all empires. And in Jesus' story, we see another story where the one that was thought to be dead is in fact alive and now rules over all, including the empires of our own creation. Because this challenge, this call of Jesus, this claim of Jesus as king is not just claim over nations and people, but claim over all of who we are, small and big, decisions complex and easy. For me, I'm challenged to consider where I've laid claim to creating myself an empire. Where am I fraudulently ruling my own life or the life of others? But I'm also challenged where I have or we have in our culture bought into the false claims of a nation or a government or a subculture or a financial dream or some other story that we live by that isn't the story of King Jesus and his kingdom. In other words, what dreams of empire, what illusions of wisdom, what unquestioned power have you bought into that create the narrative of your story? This story invites us to hear a call of faith from God to his people, to the king over all kings, to the one who is over every empire, every story, every claim, to the way of life. Pharaoh had access to it all. And yet as he stands before Joseph, before God's agent, Joseph, he is shaken and troubled and desperately seeking an answer in the face of death and despair. The empire has fallen in the face of a dream, and now the dreamer is given a new cloak and a new position, and Joseph uses that power to settle his family in the fertile land of Goshen. And he abuses that power and enslaves the entire population of Egypt, even as he feeds his family bread from the money, from the stores of his own government. He buys the people of Egypt's livestock, their land, and their lives for seed. A dark twist in a hope-filled tale of salvation. I dare Broadway to dance and sing at that point. This dark twist sets the backdrop for the dramatic political reversal from the new Egyptian regime when we get to Exodus chapter 1. Because it's there that we read that the people of God suddenly find themselves enslaved by the Egyptians in increasingly worse conditions. 
all of that, of course, leading to the story of the miraculous escape of a people out of Egypt. But it's no wonder then that there's such a strong political reaction after Joseph dies to the people of Egypt. There's still three more chapters in our story. These final three chapters are an extended family reaction to the whole saga. This is not just a story about Jacob and his sons or Joseph and his time in Egypt. This is a central story to the very identity of the people of Israel as they structure themselves around the 12 tribes of Israel named after the characters in this story. The politics and power and structure and story of an entire people are at stake here. Throughout this story, this is demonstrated by the repeated use of different themes through the story. We've seen the theme of the cloak, for example, which relates to covering and uncovering and to power and subjugation. We also have this image of seed throughout this story, which is vital to the growing of new grain and which is at stake in the terrible famine. But seed also represents the continuing of the generations. And who will supply seed and who will grow it is a major theme of this story. Now, as we've jumped through these chapters, we skipped over chapter 38. And chapter 38 is the story of Judah and his daughter, his daughter-in-law Tamar. And last week, Melinda had the joy and privilege of preaching through chapter 38. You can listen to the podcast on our website to get more detail there, but this chapter concludes that Tamar is found more righteous than Judah. And in this story too, we discovered that the word used for semen in Hebrew, an important part of that story, is the same as the word used for seed. That story is not an unhelpful interruption, but a parallel story of two brothers, Joseph and Judah, written purposefully together in this big saga. And this story between these two brothers and their families will continue for centuries, sometimes erupting in political action and bloody feuds. And the story of Israel into the future is one marked by genealogy and battles over genealogy, power struggles because of genealogy, people required to trace their ancestry, and a story of a holy seed growing in the people of God's imagination and what their prophets tell them. And the story of God's people is marked by a separatist posture where they push out people who aren't part of the family of God, that reject anyone that's not part of the family, and jealousy and rivalry and division mark their future. And here in our story, we see this beginning. If we look ahead in the story of God's people, we eventually find that they do settle in the land of Canaan. This promise given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. They form a unified kingdom under God, led first by King Saul, although that's a bit of a false start, and then united fully under King David, who's from the tribe of Judah, and then his son Solomon. And then after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. After his death, his son Rehoboam is rejected by many of the people in Israel. The tribe of Judah rally around their leader, Rehoboam, and the tribe of Benjamin follows, but the other tribes get behind Jeroboam, who's an exiled slave master from Egypt. Jeroboam is from the tribe of Ephraim, 
one of the half-tribes of Joseph. Here we have the story of a son of Judah and a son of Joseph fighting for control of the people of God. There's another interesting connection in that story. Jeroboam was in Jerusalem in charge of the building of its walls under Solomon, where he's met by a prophet named Ahijah. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak, but he takes it off, tears it into 12 pieces, and then gives Jeroboam 10 of those pieces and says that God is going to make him king over 10 of the tribes of Israel. And so Jeroboam flees in exile to Egypt to await his chance. A son of Joseph with a torn cloak in Egypt, waiting to lord over his brothers. Then when Rehoboam, the son of Judah, succeeds his father Solomon as king, the people come to him and say, lift the yoke of slavery that your your father put on us. The slavery that they were suffering was too harsh. But Rehoboam responds, you think that was slavery? You haven't seen anything yet. And so 10 of the tribes of Israel rally around Jeroboam, the former slave master, in order to escape the slavery of Rehoboam. Lost yet? They leave Judah and choose Ephraim, the son of Joseph. So the kingdom once united is now divided, constantly at war with with each other. A family at war with each other. And it's that story which forms the background for the people of God as they read these stories in Genesis. As they wrestle with who has the right to power and whose family has the seed. And I think if we understand the context of the story of the people of God, we can understand how maybe we can read these stories in Genesis. That these aren't just the exciting tales of an arrogant young man who ends up as prime minister but the wrestles for bloodlines and power, the struggles within the people of God as they figure out who they are and who they belong to. We've seen that this story is a claim to kingship by God as Joseph stands before the empire. But this story is also setting up the genealogy of the future seed. We see the prophets whispering hope-filled imaginations of a future king who will reunite that divided kingdom and establish a renewed kingdom. And the bloody and divisive story that we read through the rest of the Old Testament weaves its way towards that new day. And one day, in a nowhere part of the kingdom, a man stands up as the true king of Israel and announces a new kingdom and a new day, a day of freedom from empire Freedom from the divisive exclusion of the tribal system as all people are invited into the new family of God. Jesus announces an imagination of this new kingdom and he invites us, even as people who can't claim either Joseph or Judah as our bloodlines, into his family. And from the very beginnings of the story of Genesis, we see a promise that a seed will crush the head of evil and restore the flourishing of humanity. 
We've seen in this story and the others that evil does what it can to thwart God's good purposes, distorting, deceiving, distracting God's people from the story. It's shown us the messy reality of the characters, the divided family he chooses, and that even the power of empires cannot stop the movement of God's good purposes. And just when it looks as though the seed cannot travel any further, the people are called to faith in the God who continues to tell this story of a hopeful new day. In the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, Jacob, having seen his family survive the famine and now thriving in the delta of Egypt, he's witnessed the unlikely resurrection of his son Joseph. He now dies peacefully, trusting in the ongoing faithfulness of the God of Abraham and calling his sons to trust in him too. But the brothers are not so sure. And as Brad read for us this morning, they come to Joseph unsure of how he might treat them after their father has died. Joseph, who can now see at the end of his life all that has happened and why it has happened, says to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And then as he lay dying in Genesis 50, 24, he says, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Joseph dies, the people of God wake up to a new political reality, one where they are enslaved to Egypt. And in the face of the empire, the people of God are called to faith in the God of their forefathers, who is shown to be continuing to write his story across their generations and the ages. From the speech of creation at the beginning of the story of Genesis until the affirmation of Joseph at death, we hear the call of God, the call to faith in God, to be part of his story of flourishing life. Throughout this story, we've been surprised by who hears God's call. It's not just the ancient fathers of the pure blood. We've seen the unexpected inclusions as God weaves together a people for his purposes and the good of humanity. And as these stories have been told again for us, the character of God's purpose, the sovereign nature of who he is and what he is like, creates a real newness, in other words, a genesis, a freshness, which negates the past, redefines the present, and opens futures. And these stories invite us to respond in faith to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Hagar and Tamar and Joseph and so on. They call us to respond in faith even when the manner of God's acting eludes us. Even when the purposes of God elude us. As they eluded the main characters of these stories at so many twists and turns. The call to faith in this series began just to Abraham. A requirement for him to step out in faith. To follow God. To step into something new and different. These stories end with a call to faith to the community of God's people to step into something 
new and different, to stand up in the face of different stories, of division within their own people and resistance by empire. I'm going to pray and lead us in a prayer, a response to the call of faith that I think this series has led us into. If you want to join me, please stand. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see in their stories and in the stories of many of the other characters that we've witnessed these past few weeks a call to faith in you. Our own stories can point to examples of your faithfulness. Despite our mess, despite the mess around us, despite what seems to be powerful opposition to your kingdom by the empires of this world, And yet in these stories and ours, we continue to see your faithfulness. I pray that you will help us to respond to trusting in you, despite what we can see or can't see. That we might cling to you in our mess, in the difficulty, in the drama, in the resistance. I pray too that we might share the faith of our forefathers, of the courageous women in the stories, of the courageous outsiders included in your story who step courageously into unknown things, into hard things, into messy things, trusting that you will make a way. Help us as a community to share some of that faith. I pray too that you might help us to have a faith that is not inactive. These are not just ideas These are not just good thoughts or even good stories. They call us to a lived out faith, to live with hope, to live with deep trust in you, and to live in action. Father, as a community, we want to continue to be rebellions against empire, to stand with your power, your courage, your strength, even against the power, the wealth, the strength of those that would resist you, of those that bring injustice, of those that oppress. My prayer is that you will lead our community into spaces where we can be a challenge, a light, life bringers. Father, these stories too have surprised us with the unexpected kinds of people that you've included in your story. I pray that our community won't just find ourselves as those unexpected inclusions, but that we might be really generous in our own posture towards others who feel left out, left behind, excluded in some way. Help us to grow in love and kindness and generosity as we reach out to all of those you call us to connect with and love and include and give ourselves away to. Father, we want to thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for the kingdom he declares that he points us forward to a new day, that he reconciles our stories with you and our stories with each other, that he brings new life and redemption and renewed hope. I pray that our community might be loud in its voice, that we might be active in our love for others. And we want to finish by declaring our praise, our worship, our honour, our collective prayer together to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen.